You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about Citizens, please visit citizensbhm.com. So uh, I am a guy who has always enjoyed running throughout my whole life. And, and for most of my life, it looked like um, taking a jog around the block, you know, just giving it a cool 10 minutes, maybe 20 minutes if the weather was nice and I was feeling it. But I would just go on jogs around the block and I, re- and I enjoyed it enough, especially on warm spring days and the like. But about two years ago, I got much more committed to running. I decided like, hey, I want to run, and I want to run some races, which means I need to get faster. I I really want to commit to this. And so what I would do is I would say, I'm going to run for 30 minutes, and I'm going to time myself, uh, or I'm going to measure how far I go. And then every time I ran, I would just try to run faster. Just 30 minutes, see if I can beat the last time. 30 minutes, see if I can beat the last time. And I did this for weeks and weeks on end. And at first, I saw some, you know, big gains. You know, you get fitter, you get better at running. And I was really encouraged by my my progress as I approached my first race in a long time. But over time, I hit a plateau which means I was still really sweaty, but now I'm frustrated because you don't get any faster. (laughs) And I didn't understand why my hard work wasn't working. I'm giving it my best effort. And I had to humble myself and actually go learn about running. I I rented books from the library about running. I read blogs about running. I listened to podcasts about running. I asked everyone I knew who ran. And I started to download all this information, which is humbling, that to get faster at running, it's not about just your legs and hips getting stronger. I had a faulty view of both my body and a faulty view of how running really worked. That to really grow faster over time, to make deep gains in the distance you can go and the speed that you can go, you actually have to remake your cardiovascular system. That is, your heart and lungs have to be remade and improved. You must train your heart to pump blood more efficiently. You must train your lungs to process oxygen at a higher rate. And your body will actually start to produce more blood vessels throughout your abdomen, legs, and feet over time that you will grow to be a better runner. But the way to make this magic happen, which sounds almost unbelievable, but our God has made us and given us unbelievable bodies. The way to do this is counterproductive, or at least seems so. It isn't by running your hardest all the time. I had it completely wrong. You do this through long, slow runs of often two hours or more. And then you have to do it for years on end for your body to start to respond deeply to this stimulus to start remaking how your cardiovascular and blood vessels work. Literally the opposite of what I did, like the direct opposite. Now, um, none of you care about my cardiovascular fitness, but you're here, so I know you do care about your faith and your life before God. 
And I think a lot of Christians spend a lot of their time running until they're sweaty and frustrated, not seeing a whole lot of results spiritually. They do the same things and then say, I'm gonna do them harder. Or there's a whole nother bucket of people who are just really confused when it comes to God. And I'm so glad you're here. And kind of just run in all sorts of directions. Whatever TikTok said, that's my mantra. We're doing that. And today, Jesus is telling us through story, through a couple of parables and really what's a live action parable with these kids. He's telling us about what God's really like. And thus, along the way, he's correcting our faulty views of God. And he's also correcting our behaviors, how we come to God or respond to God. Look what he says in verse one. And he, Jesus, told them a parable, a story to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Jesus said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him. And kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. So Jesus tells us there's a judge who is an egomaniac. He doesn't care that there's any divine above him. He doesn't care about a single person around him. And he doesn't even care about who his judgments affect. That's a crazy man. That's an egomaniac. Or what we might call a jerk. A jerk is someone who cares about themselves and to make it worse, this jerk is in charge. And there's a widow. A widow is an awfully vulnerable person, especially in the ancient world. And she has had an injustice done against her and has no one to defend her. That's why she's gone to the judge. There's no husband, there's no son, there's there's no one looking after her or she would go to them probably first. She's at her last resort and her last resort is a jerk. Verse four, for while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, his church, who cry to him day and night? Will he long delay over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, that's Jesus' favorite title for himself, this divine end times figure, this Messiah, will he find faith on earth? Here's the truth. God is not a jerk, but he cares. It's a classic lesser to the greater reasoning that the Bible and Luke loves to use. If this jerky judge out of annoyance, out of his self-interest will give justice to the widow if she persists in bothering him, then how much greater is God? How much greater is a God who's not a jerk? A God who's promised to give justice to his elect, promised to those, to those who believe he will give them justice that if you believe in Jesus and you ask him that God will answer because he's not a jerk, he actually listens. He actually loves you. He actually wants what's best for you. He's so much greater than the jerky judge. So pray and don't lose heart. 
Jesus is called Wonderful Counselor in Isaiah 9. I know we have a room full of many counselors, but Jesus is the most wonderful of those counselors. No one listens better than Jesus. No one has better advice, more life experience, eternal experience. No one has better tools to help you solve your problems than Jesus. He's the wonderful counselor. But he's actually more than a perfect counselor. Jesus can actually change things, including our heart. He's more than a listening ear. He's the one who can make it happen. In church, Jesus promises justice for you in this life or in the final judgment at the coming of the Son of Man. Either way, in God's time, but it somehow will be without delay, God will bring justice. And this is transformative for us to understand. Absolutely transformative. If you're a Christian and you can get the idea that God will give you justice deep down in your heart, it transforms how you do almost all of your relationships. If God's going to give you justice, listen to this. This means you don't have to seek revenge ever because God is keeping score. Imagine how many people you could free in your life and your family if you just said, you know, Revenge isn't my thing because the Lord is an avenger. This means you can stand up for justice, stand up against injustice, knowing God is with you. You don't have to doubt if God cares or not. If it's injustice, God cares about it, and he's with you to stand up against it or for you to stand for justice. If you need to stop a convo in the workplace, if you need to have a talk with your superior because things aren't right, God's with you and you don't have to doubt it. This means you can be kind to your enemies because God was kind to you when you were an enemy in sin. That you really can be kind to people who hate you. You really can be kind to people who have wronged you. You really can be kind to your enemies because God is keeping score. And that God at the cross paid your sins out in blood. And this means God cares more about whatever it is that troubles you. He cares more than you do. So you can pray and not lose heart. God will not forget his people ever. So pray. And don't lose heart. And what Jesus is really echoing here is what the Old Testament shows over and over and over and over and over. Look at how the Psalms detail how God is responding to us in prayer. Look at this in Psalm 3. This is just a taste of the Old Testament. Look what it says. It says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he what? Oh, we're gonna have to get bigger than that. And he answered me from his holy hill. I sought the Lord and he me and delivered me from all my fears. In distress, you called and I delivered you. And I, you in the secret place of thunder. And they, Moses, Aaron, Samuel, called to the Lord and he answered them. The Lord, our God, you answered them. You were forgiving God to them, but an avenger. Out of my distress, I called to the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me free. 
I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. When I've told of my ways, I told, when I told of my ways, when I confess I am, I am, I'm an imperfect person, you answered me and you taught me your statutes, your ways. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. On the day I called, you answered me and the strength of, in my strength of soul, you increased. God can increase the strength of your soul. There is no distress that the Lord will not answer. This is just a taste. We could go all day. We'd be like Captain America up here, all right? There's an endless amount of evidence that the Lord will answer your prayers and he is not ignoring you and will give you justice. Our faith, our heart will falter if we think God's a jerk and doesn't really listen or care. But if we believe that God cares and he answers, we'll pray often and we'll pray about everything. That's the advice of the New Testament. Pray unceasingly, pray often, and pray about everything. Furthermore, God cares about how we come to him. Look at verse nine. It's this next little parable. It's like, I always think about a parable. It's like a, a pecan or a nut that gets uncracked and there's a kernel, there's something to eat. There's one lesson to take away. Look at this, verse nine. He also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. He treated other and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, that's a religious leader at the time. And the other, a tax collector. Someone who betrayed his fellow Jews and worked for the Roman overlords to collect taxes. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Bold move to come to the temple, pray with your eyes open, and start condemning others at the same temple. He continues, I fast twice a week. And I give tithes, 10% of all that I get. The Pharisee comes to the temple, a religious leader. He comes to pray, but he's not really praying. He, he's not asking anything. He's not expressing any need of God at all. He's actually come to God to tell God about how great he, the Pharisee, is. He's given a little progress report of how wonderful he is to the Lord. He prays to God as if he's an audience, not the king of the universe. And Jesus says, this is the sort of religion that trusts themselves for their righteousness and not God. Now, righteousness is a fancy word about being right with God, being holy before God. And most Pharisees thought their very religious life made them right before God, made them righteous. But as Jesus points out, their self-righteousness results in them trusting in themselves, not trusting in God, not even needing God at all in their mind. And their self-righteousness grows contempt. The word even sounds as tough as it is. Contempt is the ugly, judging, assuming, critical spirit towards others. 
So what about this tax collector, though? The tax collector that the Pharisee felt freedom to pray against to God. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, saved, forgiven, sins paid for. That's what justified means. Rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God is not impressed with us. No matter how impressive you feel, he's just not impressed with us. But he gives us mercy. And that's the good news. It's the greatest news. Because what you need, what I need, is mercy. If you want to be close to God, come and confess your sins to God. That's a one-way ticket to the presence of God. Come to God repenting, seeing your sin as sin, turning from sin and turning to God. That's what repentance is. And ask God for forgiveness and help. That's a prayer he answers. If you want to miss God or even offend God, come to God telling him about how great you are. That is a great way to miss God. And communion each Sunday here at Citizens is a wonderful, fantastic opportunity to practice and live this. We don't, there, there's no temple in Jerusalem. It was destroyed in 70 AD. We, we don't need a temple. Jesus is our temple. And it's just bread and wine, but it's a symbol. But we believe God is with us all the time and in that act. And it's a symbol that you can take communion like this. You take communion as someone who belongs to Jesus by faith. And you also take communion needing a fresh experience of grace and mercy. To come to the table properly, you don't come proud. You don't come with a spiritual resume. You come with a sense of brokenness and repentance, saying, I need you even more than I thought, Lord. Help me. And we'll find a merciful Jesus waiting for us week after week after week. We don't do it so it's repetitive and becomes boring. We do it because that's a lesson that takes a long time to sink in. And when it finally sinks in, it becomes this very valuable thing to you. I hate to miss church and miss communion. I hate to miss y'all and worship and all the things, but communion's a big deal to me because I need a fresh experience of God's grace. Our faulty view of God believes God is waiting for us to measure up. That God is somewhere waiting for us to shape up, to get it together, to earn his love and favor. Then he'll love us. But God isn't a strict school teacher or an angry coach or a CEO with a vendetta. He's none of those. That's a faulty view. 
The Lord is a merciful Father. We repent as a sinner needing mercy. We don't come to God as a lawyer arguing our case or looking to get promoted or trying to, trying to get God's favor through our little religious tasks. We just come needing mercy. There are only two types of people when it comes to religion. There's only two. doesn't even matter the religion. There are people who look up to God and therefore come to him for mercy. And they end up seeing other sinners as people who also need mercy. Or there are people who use religion to look down on others, forgetting who's truly above them. Those are the two approaches. The first one is the gospel. The second one is all other religions, including some people trying to use Christianity that way, just as a Pharisee was using Judaism that way. The man who knew his sin, the despised tax collector, the traitor to his fellow Jews, he came, heavenly bur- he came heavily burdened by his sin and he left that temple light as a feather. He couldn't even lift up his eyes and he's walking home justified, paid for by God, made righteous by God. But the Pharisee came proud and he left the temple a fool and more lost than ever. His prayer didn't bring him closer. If anything, it pushed him farther away. Self-righteousness makes us miss God and mistreat others. Because when we compare and compete to prove ourselves better than them, since if you're self-righteous, you got to be a little more righteous than anyone else you know. When we compare and compete, you eventually think you're better than others. And when someone thinks they're better than another person, hate, wickedness, contempt isn't far behind. It's really hard to mistreat another person if you don't think you're better than them. If you really believe we're equal and we're all people who need mercy, it's super hard to mistreat the other person. Self-righteousness spawns all sorts of evil, ethnic evil, racism, classism, all those things spawn deeper from the idea of self-righteous that I am better than someone. Therefore, I can treat people however I want. And it should be forbidden for the Christian. Who knows we're all created by God, all in need of God's grace. God loves absolutely every single one of us. And that we don't come with a spiritual resume to our Savior, but beating our breasts saying, give me fresh grace, God. God's righteousness makes us see our spiritual need and be kind to fellow sinners. A favorite pastor of mine said, evangelism is one beggar telling another where to find the bread. He's right. We don't need to impress Jesus at all, but rather verse 15 and beyond tells us we need to know our helplessness and come to Jesus. Verse 15, now they were bringing even infants to Jesus that Jesus might touch them. Parents are just bringing their kids up to this guy. And when the disciples saw it, those 12 guys that are rolling around with Jesus, they rebuked them, being the parents and maybe the kids. I don't, <laughs> tough look. But Jesus called 
them to him. He says, parents, step on back. Disciples too. Saying, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. It's this live action parable. It really happened, but comes to life. God welcomes children. And God welcomes people who come like children to him, who know that they're helpless. The disciples shoo away children for a number of reasons. In the ancient world, children were were dirty. They carried diseases. They often died young. People didn't get super attached. It, It was a very different world. And it left kids often unwanted. And the disciples fell into this cultural trap. They don't see kids as part of the mission. Doesn't Jesus have something important to do? Doesn't Jesus have important things to tell us? Important things to heal this person and business to do? These kids, they're going to ruin our our whole day. They're going to ruin the whole calendar. Isn't Jesus busy? Busy's not a new idol, by the way. And if you've spent time with children... They're not known for efficiency. If you need some practical experience, coach a city kid on putting on their shoes. Take a seat. And the disciples, they try to shoo away the kids and the parents. And instead, Jesus performs the first child dedication ceremony. What he would do next in the Jewish tradition would grab the, each kid, pray for him, bless him, and perform a, a dedication to the Lord. And that's, you know, quite literally why we dedicate kids here at Citizens. We do it in the spring and the fall because we're following Jesus. God loves kids and we want to bless them. And here's the truth. God is not busy. He's just not. Our infinite God has never been overwhelmed or stressed out. But he loves the weak. And that's what kids are. Kids need a lot of help. Especially talking about kids' kids. They get older, they can be more helpful. But kids' kids, they aren't useful, they're not productive. They are not strong in comparison to a a full-grown human. Rather, kids are defined by their need for you. A child won't even survive on its own. I got a little puppy right now named Archer. All she does is bite me, okay? And Archer would survive on her own pretty quickly. By like month four or five, she would probably figure out how to eat and find warmth and blah, blah, blah. Kids don't do that. I mean, like 15 maybe, and that's a heavy maybe. Some of us are still figuring it out. Humans are made needy. In the womb, needy. At birth, needy. Kind of all the way through life, humans were meant to live together and need each other and ultimately need God. But neediness is not a problem for God at all. In fact, it's how you come to him. It's the only way. 
You come to God weak. You come to God needy. You come to God humble. You come reaching out to God. So church, come to God in your weakness. If you're feeling spiritually dry or closed off or the weather got you down, all all the things, try to be your weakest self coming to God. Come to him in confession. Come to him in brokenness. Come to him saying, I don't feel you at all, Lord. And the Lord won't reject you, but pull you close. When my Tyler, he's now five, uh, was little, um, I, I don't remember all his first words. I, you know, second child. Um, but I do remember two of his words. Um, you know, he just kind of learned to walk. He was waddling up. And he would, he would look at me and say, say, hold you with his arms out. And what he's doing is he's, he's mimicking me and mom that we would offer to hold him with our arms out. And what he means is, will you please hold me? But he just would say, hold you over, over and over. And Tyler didn't have a big list of reasons of why I should hold him. Tyler didn't send me his LinkedIn. Uh, He didn't do feats of strength. Uh, There were no push-ups yet. Now there's push-ups. He didn't show off his smarts or even his sincerity. He didn't try to bargain with me. He didn't ask me to sign a list of terms and conditions. Tyler wasn't trying to be in control at all. He came like a child to his father. On my end, I I didn't make Tyler say please or beg. I didn't make him convince me of his needs. I didn't correct his grammar. I didn't give him a fresh list of rules to go obey. Tyler was surrendering to a dad he loves and trusts and who cares for him. Tyler needed a hug, and he got a hug. Tyler needed love and safety, and Tyler got it. And God's a much better father than I am. Jesus says the way into his kingdom is to come as a child would. To come reaching out to God, saying, hold you is the only way to know Jesus truly. You can know him intellectually. You can know him from stories of others. You can even serve with your hands. But if you don't come with your heart, you're going to miss them all together. Don't live another day with a faulty view of God, church. If our view is wrong, we'll behave wrongly. If our view is right, then we at least have a chance to set our heart, set our hopes on God truly. If you want to know God, it's not about getting it all together. That's like trying to run faster. It's long, slow communion with God, coming to someone that you can pray to because he listens, someone who gives mercy freely, someone that welcomes you as a child. And God will transform us from the inside out day after day, year after year, 
slow but powerful change, like a heart growing in distance running. God is not a jerk. Instead, he cares. So pray and don't lose heart, citizens. God is not impressed with you or anyone else, but gives mercy. So repent as a sinner needing mercy. God has never been busy, but loves the weak. So come to God in your weakness. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If you ask to be held, you'll realize you're already in his arms.